We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Um, well, thank you so much for that really, really warm introduction. Uh, it's a little uh, embarrassing to have your bio read out uh, loud by, by someone um, as, uh, um, uh, as, as, as honored and, uh, and as respected as, as you. So thank you for, for sharing that. Um, like you said, I, I was born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, and I think that, it, that that's actually, for me, a, a significant part of my journey because um, in Atlanta, it's, uh, it's, it's hard to escape the shadow of Martin Luther King. Uh, and, uh, and so um, I, I grew up uh, really with the, with, with the uh, presence and awareness of, of King and his legacy um, uh, in my life and, uh, and, and seeing the, the role of uh, faith in addressing uh, the challenges um, and inequities and injustices in our society was something that that always kind of guided me and inspired me uh, throughout my life. It's one of the things that uh, propelled me into uh, into ministry, into the rabbinate, um, and it's one of the uh, things that continues to guide my work today to build um, a more uh, uh, inclusive community, Jewish community, um, and to um, to try to uh, inspire uh, my fellow congregants and my fellow Jews to work together to make a more um, just and inclusive, uh, broader community. So that's um, one of the things that we're that we're striving to do. Um, and uh, uh, many people call folks like Dr. King um, a modern day prophet, um, and that is, I think, relevant to our conversation today and something that we'll we'll probably get into um, into later. Um, but also, uh, I think another significant part of, uh, of my journey is, you know, I, I think not everybody's faith journey kind of goes in a straight trajectory, in a straight arc. Um, mine kind of zigzagged here and there. Um, and, uh, and so I, I also, you know, bring to my work as a rabbi, um, a degree of um, skepticism and iconoclasm. Um, I think that uh, um, that's that's to my mind healthy and good for the Jewish community um, to to challenge um, established orthodoxies and, uh, and and conventional wisdom. Um, and so I went to a uh, an Orthodox Jewish day school when I was growing up. Uh, that um, uh, that that at least in the Judaic studies component of uh, of, of learning. Um, uh, was very um, anti-scientific and anti-modern, uh, and, uh, and and being a kind of contrarian by my nature and, and kind of a, a skeptical kid by nature, um, that, uh, that that was a real challenge to me, and um, and so um, uh, there was a period of time where. <clears throat> I was very much um, not interested in religion, if that's what religion was. 
uh, it took some time for me to uh, come back to religion and happen to be able to find um, an approach to Judaism uh, that, um, that, that allowed for uh, contemporary uh, knowledge and contemporary insight and that uh, uh, incorporated um, and, and wrestled with uh, not only the natural sciences but the social sciences. Uh, that's more or less how I, not only did I grow up in a synagogue that was uh, affiliated with the conservative movement in Judaism, which we can talk about in, in a, in a, later if you, if you want, um, but basically conservative Judaism is uh, an attempt to marry um, traditional Judaism with, with contemporary knowledge and insight. Um, and so I kind of uh, had always been brought up in that uh, not only went to an Orthodox day school, but went, but was part of a conservative Jewish community. But from a conscious point of view, um, I, I really only discovered that that was uh, a meaningful path of Judaism when I was a when I was a teenager, which is a good time to discover things like that. Um, and and uh, and so that's also um, one of the uh, channels that kind of brought me into uh, Jewish communal leadership and and, and spiritual leadership. Um, and I think that's also uh, one of the things that, uh, that, that draws me to the Hebrew prophets, um, because uh, not only like Dr. King um, are the Hebrew prophets uh, voices for, uh, for, for social transformation and, and justice, um, but also uh, in many ways uh, see themselves as, as oppositional figures to the established orthodoxies. Um, or complacencies of the of the culture in which they live, um, and so I'm really grateful to be able to talk about uh, to talk about them and that today. Um, so here's what I'm thinking. Um, I'm thinking that maybe I'll just kind of uh, start with a little bit of uh, of background, uh, and then we can open for conversation. Remind me what time we need to be done. Probably about ten fifteen. Ten fifteen. Okay. Um, so we'll do it this way. I mean, we're in a kind of casual setting, so feel free to interrupt me at any time if you want to uh, ask questions that are either related to or not related to the material that we're that we're talking about. Happy to just kind of have a, a free flowing conversation. Um, I, I, you know, uh, we're not going to learn everything there is to know about the Hebrew prophets anyway right now. So uh, so in, in you know thirty minutes, forty five minutes. So uh, so feel free. I'm happy to be sidetracked. Um, that's okay. We can. Uh, it's all it's all meaningful. Right, good, good. There's this great story in the Talmud where uh, a, the Talmud is a, a compendium of, a, of a rabbinic uh, law and, and wisdom and lore. Uh, and there's a story of um, a, a rabbi who uh, um, goes to his master's house. So there's a sort of chance, sort of like uh, in Star Wars, you have like Jedi masters and apprentices. That's how the rabbinic tradition worked. Uh, and so you had a rabbi who goes to his uh, rabbinic master's house uh, and hides under his bed to, uh, to, to hear uh, he, the, the master and his wife, um, uh, engaging in marital relations. And, uh, and he, you know, like sort of coughs or sneezes or something like that under the bed. And the, uh, the teacher kind of uh, pulls over the sheet and says, you know, um, I forget which rabbi it is. I'm going to just say, you know, uh, uh, Ashi, is that you? And he says, yes. He's like, what are you doing here? And he says, um, this is also Torah, and I have to learn it. 
right? And so, um, so, I, so that's uh, so I, I say that um, to say that uh, that that I, no matter what your questions are, that's also Torah, and it's worth learning. Uh, so even if it's not on topic, uh, we can we can talk about it. Um, I also brought a couple of uh, books for show and tell. Um, this is an older one, as you can see. Um, it's really a classic. You know, if you ever want to really kind of learn the the best of uh, what Jewish thinkers have said about the Hebrew prophets, you should check out this book. It's by a rabbi who you may have encountered before named Abraham Joshua Heschel, uh, who was, uh, as it turns out, very involved in the civil rights movement in the uh, in the 50s and 60s with, uh, with Martin Luther King. He himself was a, a survivor of the Holocaust um, and, uh, and, and brought that sensibility to, to his work. So this was actually his um, doctoral uh, dissertation that he ended up uh, turning into a, a published book. Um, and uh, this copy is from my synagogue library, and I was uh, pulling it out the other day uh, because I'm working on a, uh, on a class of the prophets later in the year, and I didn't have the book itself on my, on my own shelf, so I got it from my synagogue's library, uh, and I like opened it, and I found inside of it this um, racing ticket <laughs> so maybe the prophets were, someone was thinking that the prophets would give them good luck uh, back in 1969 when uh, this individual went to the racetrack. Uh, but anyway, uh, whether you go racing with it or not, it's a good, it's an uh, important work to, to look at. And then this is a new book, just came out this year by uh, um, a, a colleague of mine named uh, Rabbi Nahum Ward-Lev called The Liberating Path of the Hebrew Prophets Then and Now. Um, it's also really uh, great volumes, and encourage you to check it out. And I'll pepper some of what I'm uh, saying, uh, what I'm going to share today from from both of these both of these works. Um, I also, before I formally begin, I want to bring greetings from uh, my friend and colleague and clergy partner Cantor Dieter Rosenblatt, who was here last year, uh, who uh, really, really uh, has very warm things to say about. Um, about this community, and I can see why. Um, and so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that, that it's really by her merit that, uh, that, that I um, have been connected um, with the St. John's community. It's really an honor to, to be here. Um, what an incredible church and congregation this is. Um, it's really an honor. So, okay. <clears throat> I guess the first question that I have before we start is, can we get a, def a working definition of a prophet? Or prophecy, what would you say? Spirit inspired. Someone who is spirit inspired. Can you unpack that a little bit? What does that mean? Mm, um, they're overseen by God. Uh, they're given wisdom and voice by God. Okay, so someone who. Uh, has a who who has a close relationship with God, in your words, overseen by God, someone who's who's given uh, insight uh, and and uh, and is moved to speak uh, because of God's spirit. Okay. Any other thoughts or ideas about interpreter? An interpreter. What do you mean by interpreter? Well, I always see a prophet as someone who can interpret the word, um, history storytelling and convert it to what it means to me right then and there. So a prophet would have been a prophet in there in his their God to the people. Great. Okay, so someone who can 
communicate some kind of deep insight uh, in a way that people can hear and understand. Maybe one other idea? Vision. Someone who has vision. What do you mean by vision? <laughs> um, who sees a better future or warns of uh, and, and also some impending um, situation can sort of see what's coming. Good, okay. So someone who can see what's coming, and I'd maybe add to that, not only someone who can see, you know, some kind of disaster that's looming, but also maybe someone who has a picture of what, um, of, of what an ideal world, uh, what the future could look like, even though it's not what it looks like right now. Um, I think that these are great definitions of a prophet, and I think what's also interesting is that I think commonly in our culture, when we talk about prophet or we talk about prophecy, um, we usually think of it more in line with, with the idea of vision, but maybe even kind of to put a finer point on it, we, we think about prophecy as like someone who can predict the future. And I think that by and large, that's not what the biblical prophets um, are doing. They might have a, a, an idea of what might happen in the future or what could happen in the future, what could be, but not necessarily... Uh, from time to time, they, they have, you know, this is going to happen. I'm, I have a vision that this is going to happen from time to time. But for the most part, I think it actually is much more in line with some of the other ideas that were around uh, around the table. Yeah. Well, I think it's the Arabic. It's Professor Wolf, mm-hmm. the messenger. And in the Greek Orthodox, it's a hermeneutic. Okay. A messenger after Hermes. So a prophet will be not someone speaking for himself. Excellent. Okay. Excellent. Okay, and that's kind of in line with. Uh, sorry, what's your name? Bill. With what Bill said too. I think right. Someone who someone who is is sort of like channeling God's spirit and delivering a message on God's behalf and not necessarily on on their own behalf. Now, you know, some of that might be the vantage point of uh, of you know the. Uh, the gift of perspective. Um, it's quite possible that the uh, that the mostly men who uh, who we now uh, hold to be the biblical prophets, um, you know, claim to be carrying God's message. Um, and it's quite possible that they were, right? It's also uh, it's also possible that with the vantage point of history, we do see that they were carrying God's message, or they were in, they were canonized in the Bible because what they said um, uh, turned out to be uh, insightful. Um, uh, but they were also uh, human beings with their own uh, with with their own uh, predilections, with their own sensibilities, with their own styles, uh, and so uh, so you, they. It's, I think, important both to see how they might have been conveyors of message and channeling the spirit, but also um, how they uh, they were also unique personalities, right? They all had their own. If you look at all the different books of the prophets, there's there's certainly some overlap between them. There's certainly some commonalities between different books, um, especially. Uh, I'll talk about these in, in, in a little bit more detail, but especially First Isaiah and Micah, for example, um, are very uh, have very similar uh, ideas and thoughts. Um, but uh, you know the difference between, say, um, the personality of Ezekiel and the personality of Jeremiah, um, are uh, or the personality of Hosea, the personality of Isaiah, um, are are very different kinds of personalities. So they're they're both. Vessels and humans, um, which I think is uh, is is meaningful. So the um, 
uh, Jewish tradition, I, I have a sense of how the um, how Christian tradition lays out the um, the biblical prophets. Um, the Jewish Bible, which uh, Christians often call the Old Testament, Jews don't like to call it the Old Testament uh, because um, uh, because it sounds kind of pejorative uh, to what we think of the of, of the Hebrew of, of our scriptures. So we usually like to call it in English. Maybe we'll call it the Hebrew Bible or the Jewish scriptures. And that's um, what they teach it in seminary now. That's how they teach in seminary now. Great. So um, uh, the Hebrew term for the Hebrew Bible is an, is the Tanakh. Okay, the Tanakh is, Tanakh is an acronym for three different sections. The first section is the Torah, which is the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Um, the, sec, the third section, I'll get to the second section next. The third section is Ketuvim, which is the writings or, or hagiographa. That's like Psalms, Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes, uh, wisdom literature, poetry, um, etc. And then the middle section is called Nevi'im. Prophets. Okay, that middle section. Yes, Nevi'im, Nevi'im, which means prophets. Um, a Navi uh, is a male prophet. Nevi'ah is a female prophet. Um, and that middle section is broken down a little bit differently than uh, it is in a lot of uh, uh, Christian formulations of the of the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, because that middle section includes. Some texts that, that uh, sometimes Christians identify as historical texts, like um, like Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, uh, whereas other historical texts, uh, like Chronicles, are actually in that third section called the called Ketuvim writings. Um, but the but the heart of the section uh, that's known as the prophets are what we would call the literary prophets, right? So that is the, the major prophets in Jewish understanding, um, which are which are not necessarily in historical order, but the the most uh, lengthy and significant of the books um, are Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and then we have what we what we call in Hebrew or actually in Aramaic Treasar. Which is the twelve minor prophets? Um, so the twelve minor prophets uh, uh, include. I'm, I'm going to probably forget some of them. <laughs> name all of them, but uh, Amos, Hosea, uh, Micah, uh, Malachi, Habakkuk, uh, Nahum, what? Obadiah, Obadiah uh, Zechariah, uh, Jonah. Malachi. I think I said Malachi. Joel, thank you. Uh, did we say Obadiah? Yeah. yeah. Did you say Micah? I did say Micah. All right, there's two others that we're missing there. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, in, in any event, so they're um, they're known as the uh, as as the minor prophets. So we'll get to we'll, yeah, and that's really only because of the length of the books in, in a lot of senses, not because of their significance. Um, although, as, as all. If I have time, we'll get to it later. How the prophets are used today in Jewish practice, um, uh, we get a lot of mileage out of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, uh, and less mileage out of the uh, other prophets. I think that, like the you know, among those that are really significant for in the in Jewish liturgical life, um, are Amos, Isaiah, uh, Micah, um, and Jonah. Um, and Jonah is a really kind of strange and unique book of the prophets, but we can because he doesn't really have much prophecy. Um, so it's a, it's a kind of insight into the psychology and um, 
uh, it's like a narrative of the life of a prophet or an experience of a prophet rather than a book about what their prophecy actually was. So Jonah's a weird book. So um, you said that Micah and Amos, and I think another one kind of informs, I think you said the liturgical life um, for Jewish people. Um, In the context of where we are today, are there some of the prophets that speak more towards um, the Jewish understanding of social justice? Because I know that you're very involved and active in that. Um, are Are there... some that, that you pull from more for your own understanding of how you as a person of faith interact with kind of the injustice that the world has in these days? Um, so, th- I mean, you're asking a personal question or, or a broadly Jewish question. I would say that, oh, um, okay. yeah, I would say that, uh, that, that uh, Isaiah, Micah um, uh, are, are pretty significant. Uh, Amos and Hosea, uh, especially Amos, um, are, are pretty significant in that in that respect. Um, Jonah, in a way, is too, uh, because you know. So Jonah is unique among the prophets, not only for the reasons that I shared with you before, but because um, his prophecy is to uh, a Gentile nation. Uh, so virtually all of the other prophets are prophesying exclusively to other Jews, to other Israelites. Uh, the term Jews didn't exist yet in that. Uh, period of history, the other Israelites. Uh, and, um, and Jonah's unique that he, that he prophesies uh, to, uh, to, to, to non-Jews, to non-Israelites, he prophesies to Nineveh, which are uh, uh, Babylonians. Um, and, um, and, and so what, you know, what's significant, I think, about that is it's, uh, is it's a kind of theological expansion uh, in, in the Ideolo- you know, the trajectory of ideas of Jewish history, um, that the God of Israel is also the God of all humanity, uh, and that, um, that the call for, uh, for, for justice and, uh, and moral order um, is, uh, is incumbent not only upon, you know, locally upon Israelite society, but upon everybody, and that, God, that everybody is God's concern, not just, uh, not just Israel. Um, okay. Sometimes we're surprised about, about we're surprised by who hears that. Yes, right. I mean, I know in this art tradition also, it's the one who we would least like expect to right. get it right, and we're not. Getting well, it right. right. So that you know, that's another interesting thing about Jonah is that he's one of the few examples of a successful prophet, <laughs> right? Because the people of Nineveh actually listened to his prophecy and changed their ways because of it. Um, you know, it's a. I find that true sometimes. Is that sometimes maybe why I'm, why I, why I so appreciate uh, uh, interfaith work is that sometimes I'm much more inclined to have a, a group of you know uh, Christians uh, like like jive with what I'm saying than the, than to move my own congregation. Um, so I, I, I get Jonah. I get him. Um, um, all right. So. Uh, Looking at the looking at the kind of like scope of the Jewish Bible, even though we have a section that's called the prophetic section, there's of course prophets that that uh, that populate the text outside of uh, outside of that section. So you know, as as an example, uh, in Jewish tradition, the patriarchs and matriarchs uh, are, are are known. Uh, are, are identified as prophets, have the ability to kind of have the spirit in them and to convey messages from the divine, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and, and Rebecca, uh, Jacob, Rachel and Leah. Um, 
uh, we're just in our liturgical calendar right now. Uh, we just finished reading the narratives uh, in Genesis of, of Abraham and Sarah. Now we're moving on to the narratives of Isaac and Rebecca. Rebecca, um, in, in uh, this coming week's portion that we'll read from the Torah, um, has this um, has this uh, moment of prophecy. She becomes pregnant, uh, and she they're, they're, the uh, babies are wrestling in her in her womb. And she says uh, a, a phrase. I don't know how it's often translated in, in, in Christian uh, scriptures, but in Hebrew, it's "im ken lama ze anochi." Um, if so, uh, why am I? Or why is this happening to me? Or something like this? Um, or like you know why? Why did this befall me? Uh, and so she goes to inquire of God, and God says that you have two uh, uh, babies in your in your womb, uh, and they'll be both become uh, nations. But the uh, the young, the older will serve the younger. Um, so this is a prophetic message that Rebecca gets too. Uh, Sarah is understood by uh, Jewish tradition to be a prophet at a higher level than Abraham is, um, and uh, and so you see that playing out in, in some places in, in Genesis. So these are uh, figures that aren't that don't have uh, works of prophecy in their name. We don't have the content of of their messages, although there's some. Um, uh, pseudepigraphic uh, texts that uh, that sometimes purport to be in uh, the um, in the words of those figures that are not exactly uh, not likely to be uh, historically authentic. Um, and then you have uh, in Exodus and and then the the rest of the Bible you have Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Miriam is actually um, uh, Moses and Miriam. Uh, are identified as prophets, are called Nevi'im. Miriam is called Nevi'ah, a prophetess, and Moses is called Navi, but only actually at the end of the uh, Pentateuch. Um, at the end of Deuteronomy, it says, Lokam Yisrael, uh, od Navi umabit. Uh, there was never, uh, there never arose in Israel another prophet like like Moses. Um, it's an interesting thing to think about, and to think about Moses's life as a trajectory of a, of a prophet, especially compared to the prophets that we're uh, going to look at uh, today. Um, uh, that uh, you know, we, we we don't have a lot of um, what we would call literary prophecy from Moses, but we do see Moses as um, as a, a a moral and political leader and religious leader of, of his people. So thinking about prophet in that light, Miriam as well. Um, uh, Aaron is called a prophet, but only from a certain perspective. So when God talks to Moses at the burning bush and Moses um, demurs from his responsibility to go and, and liberate the Israelites, uh, God says that uh, you will be in the role of God to Pharaoh and Aaron will be your prophet. Aaron, your brother, will be your prophet, like your mouthpiece, right? So talking about prophets as conveying a message or conveying spirit, right? I think that that's a good indication of what the sense is. Um, a little bit later, right, in the, in, in the, if you kind of follow the historical narrative from the Pentateuch through Joshua and Judges, Joshua is understood to be a prophet in, in Jewish tradition. Uh, many of the judges are understood to have prophetic abilities in, in Jewish tradition. There are male and female judges or chieftains uh, in, in that text. Um, but you really don't get uh, uh, um, prophets in the like literary sense until the books of uh, Samuel and Kings. Okay, and, Sa and Samuel, of course. Um, yes. Do you need water or coffee? I I'm okay. I just finished my coffee, so I definitely don't need more coffee. But maybe <laughs> I'll get some water in a minute. Um, thank you. Uh, so uh, uh, Samuel, who. Uh, 
um, uh, is is also in some ways you know uh, we don't have again lengthy um, uh, uh, lengthy prophecies from Samuel. It's more of a of a book of the uh, life and times of the prophet Samuel, um, the first Samuel, and really Samuel the the even the book is named after him. Jewish tradition claims that he's the author of that book. Um, uh, but the book isn't really about Samuel. The book of Samuel, the two books of Samuel are really about the beginnings of the monarchy in, uh, in, in ancient Israel. We'll talk about that in just a second. Um, and there is a, another prof- prophetic figure in the book of Samuel uh, named Nathan. And Nathan is actually a really interesting uh, prophetic figure. And I'll give, come back to this in a minute because so there were uh, uh, prophets had an interesting function in ancient Israelite society. Um, there were really kind of three power structures in, in uh, ancient Israel. The book of Samuel talks about the rise of the monarchy, right? So there were, there were monarchs, there were kings, okay? But there were also priests. The religious life of ancient Israel was mostly done um, as a sacrificial cult. Uh, A little bit later, uh, under the reign of King Solomon, there is a a central temple built in Jerusalem, which itself is a city that Solomon's father David conquered. Um, Before that, there is sacrificial worship, uh, but not in a centralized location. Oh, thank you. there is uh, uh, sacrificial worship that happens in different places, but not necessarily in a central location. Uh, and uh, at various times in ancient Israel, uh, there were uh, uh, there were attempts to centralize worship in Jerusalem uh, and other instances in which uh, uh, sacrificial worship happens kind of all, all over the place. Um, and so whether at Jerusalem itself or everywhere else, uh, priests were an important um, uh, 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 power structure within ancient Israel. They were, if you want, it's I mean similar in some ways to um, uh, at least I, I know best like the Catholic Church, right? If you if you want um, a uh, a way of connecting to God, you have to do it through the priest, right? So the priest had a lot of power, uh, and so um, if you think about like American, you know the. the uh, the American system uh, since the Constitution, where you have a, a separation of powers, you kind of had that in the ancient world too, in a certain respect. You had kings, you had priests, and you had prophets, right? And prophets sometimes were within the power structure, right? So there were court prophets. Nathan was a court prophet. What's interesting though about Nathan is that even though he's presumably under the employ of David, and you would think that if he's you know, under the employ of David, um, uh, he, you know, he would be reticent to challenge the king. Nathan, in a number of instances, uh, is uh, not hesitant about challenging uh, King David. There are other instances, of course, of court prophets uh, that, that, you know, uh, are more sycophantic, but, um, but not Nathan, at least, right? But you can imagine if there were court prophets, it would be sycophantic. But... More often, prophets are outside the power structure. The literary prophets that we'll talk about are outside the power. So they're outside the power. They may have connections to people in power. They might have relationships with the king or with uh, other members of the royal family or with other nobles. Uh, but they are, they're, they're not you know, on the payroll of the palace. 
Uh, and so uh, more often, uh, the prophets are, are in a role of trying to speak God's truth to, to power outside the power. So they're railing from the outside. Now, I'd say that that means that they really, you know, if you talk about separation of powers, they really weren't all that powerful because they didn't have an official position. And indeed, it's true that um, in a number of instances, probably most instances, um, the prophets that have a critical message to uh, the powers that be, whether that be the priesthood or whether that be the uh, royals or whether that be the people, um, that their messages aren't listened to in their time. Uh, Jeremiah uh, is a famous example who gets thrown in jail for uh, for his railing against uh, the, the power structure. Um, and so it's really only in uh, with, from the vantage point of history in retrospect, right, when, when we see that the uh, messages of these prophets uh, came true, uh, that, um, uh, that, uh, that, that we look at them uh, in reverence, but they weren't necessarily appreciated uh, in their time. In, in, from a certain perspective, they didn't have a lot of power uh, in their time either. So you can think about it as separation of powers, except for just holding in your mind that the prophets weren't really all that powerful. Um, they had the, the potentially the, the power of spirit, um, but they didn't have any official power. Um, and they were annoying. And they were annoying, right? <laughs> to, to put it in more. Two other prophets that don't make it into that don't have word, books named after them themselves, but are significant at least in the Jewish tradition, are um, Elijah and his uh, protege Elisha, uh, who are in the Book of Kings. Uh, Elijah especially is significant in, in Jewish tradition, um, and Elijah is a really good example of this too. Right? He he um, he exists outside the power structure and, um, and 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 tries to organize the people against the king and queen, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, um, who in Elijah's point of view have turned the, uh, the entire people against, um, against God and, and, uh, and following, uh, um, another God. Um, and he even says, right, like, uh, he goes into, he goes to Sinai in the wilderness and, uh, and there's, you know, there's, a um, there's like this earthquake and uh, this storm and this fire, right? And the text, it's a beautiful text, and God was not in the storm. God was not in the earthquake. God was not in the fire. And then uh, in Hebrew, kolt mamadaka, there was a still small voice or a soft murmuring sound or something like that, and that was the voice of God. And God says to him, why are you here, Elijah? And Elijah says, because I'm the only one that's left who still is passionate about God, right? So in Elijah's self-image, at least, um, self-understanding, he's the only one in the entire society who still is loyal to the God of Israel. Now, whether or not that's whether that's hyperbole or not, uh, we, you know, who knows, but that's Elijah's sense, right? He's alone in this, right? And a lot of times, um, the prophets report feeling alone in, in uh, sharing, in their point of view or sharing their messages, um, and that, that's something, you know, that's both the good and the bad, uh, in a sense, about being a prophet, is that sometimes it's a lonely profession, right? Um, when you are uh, an iconoclast, when you are uh, a contrarian, when you are challenging uh, the established orthodoxies and the status quo, and you're challenging the power structure, um, that can be a very lonely place to be. Um, 
and, uh, and, and you know, the, in general, people are complacent. And uh, in general, people, you know, uh, uh, enjoy the status quo. Or if they don't enjoy the status quo, they're not willing to challenge the status quo. Uh, and so that puts the profit uh, in, in a lot of instances on the outside uh, and, uh, and and makes for a very lonely life. Um, I'll, uh, yes? What is Eliza? Do they, uh, why does he have an empty chair? Yeah. Um, and, uh, Right. So Elijah, uh, as uh, uh, you, you may have seen in, in the book of Kings, um, is taken up by God uh, into heaven before death um, in, a, in a fiery chariot. Uh, and so uh, in, the, in Jewish tradition is understood uh, to live on uh, beyond, uh, uh, to never have died and is sort of like being held by God. Um, and the function is uh, the function that Elijah plays is he's supposed to be the one who announces the coming of the Messiah, um, and that's actually uh, um, a phrase in the book of Daniel, which is not in the Jewish Bible, um, or the Jewish scriptures, a book of prophecy. It's actually in the book of writings, um, largely because of the time period in which Daniel was written. It was probably it's probably the latest book of the of the Hebrew Bible to have been written, or one of the latest much later than the time period of the literary prophets, even though it purports to be from an earlier period of time. But anyway, Daniel says, you know, I'm going to send you uh, Elijah the prophet before the, the great and terrible day. Oh, no, this isn't in Daniel. Sorry, this is in Malachi, I think. Anyway, whatever. Um, one of the books says that... Uh, that, that powerful literature. Right, right. That, uh, that, you know, that God says, you know, behold, I'm going to send Elijah before the great and terrible day of, of the Lord. So Jewish tradition understands that to mean that that uh, when it's time for the Messiah to come, Elijah is going to announce the coming of the Messiah. It's also why in the in the Gospels, someone says to you know says about Jesus, right? Who are you? Um, are you are you the Messiah? Are you Elijah? Right? Because they're they're wondering, right? Are you the Messiah? Or are you just announcing the coming of the Messiah? Um, so that's Elijah's role, and we keep uh, an empty chair for him um, in certain mo- r- ritual moments in Jewish life. Um, so it's to say that this moment. Uh, uh, we're, we're holding out the possibility, the opportunity that this is what the world needed for Elijah to come back, right, and to announce the coming Messiah. So, was, especially at the at the um, naming ceremonies or uh, circumcision ceremonies for uh, for babies, uh, we say the chair for Elijah um, uh, because we say that that you know there's so much potential in a new life that maybe it's what the world needed uh, for redemption. Uh, we welcome Elijah at the Passover Seder. Um, because there's a tradition that says, uh, uh, just as the first uh, redemption happened at Passover, the ultimate redemption will also happen at Passover. He'll receive the glass of wine. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, and when I was growing up in Jewish day school, uh, inevitably someone had a science fair project um, that was, does Elijah really drink the wine at the Passover Seder? And so they like, you know, so like, like take a like a you know snapshot of like measuring the cup. <laughs> they the, uh, didn't know about evaporation. Um, <laughs> Oh, he might have been there. He might have been there. Yeah, I'm not discounting it. Yeah. Um, although, I, you know, we often wonder, like, uh, 
you know, it's like Santa Claus. It's like, uh, how much milk and cookies can Santa Claus eat on Christmas Eve? And, you know, how much wine can Elijah drink on Passover? Um, right, he's going to all the houses. It's a lot of wine. Um, it's also really sweet wine, usually. And, uh, you know, it's like I, I worry about uh, Elijah's diabetes. Just like, <laughs> just like Santa's. So, um, so, yeah, please. It's a spiritual thing. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Floating around. Right. Right, and 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 the idea of that cup is that it's a is that uh, it's a it's a cup of redemption, right? Is that uh, um, we have these um, the four cups of wine that you drink at Passover correspond to four uh, terms verbs related to redemption that are used in the Book of Exodus. But there's also a fifth uh, term that's used, um, which rabbinic tradition says we, we that's the that's a term for ultimate redemption. Um, because it's the Heveti El Aretz, I will bring you to the land in Jewish tradition. Uh, messianic redemption will involve um, uh, uh, the ingathering of the exiles uh, back to the Holy Land. Um, which is actually, I think, a good segue into talking just a bit about the uh, historical period of the literary prophets. Okay? So the literary prophets, um, beginning with Amos, who's the first... Uh, historically of the literary prophets, even though he's not in the Hebrew Bible, the first book that's uh, that in, in the order of how we have it. Um, uh, uh, Amos and close by is Hosea, uh, who are prophesying close to the same time. Uh, about 750 BCE to about 535 BCE. So there's about a 200-year period um, that is the period uh, of those literary prophets. Um, that's a significant span of time in, in Jewish history. So just, uh, or for, uh, of Israeli history. So just to kind of give a, a sense, if you, if you already know all this, stop me and we can just move on. But, uh, but basically, the book of Samuel Kings kind of introduces the history of the, uh, of the period of monarchy uh, from, in, in, in the span of Jewish history, or the span of ancient history, um, most of what we know of, uh, of, of ancient Jewish history really only starts in this period. We don't have a lot of historical evidence from before this period. So, you know, um, the exodus from Egypt, there's virtually no evidence that's been discovered uh, as of yet for the exodus from Egypt. The revelation at Mount Sinai, there's virtually no historical of the patriarchs, for all that matter, who were supposed to be you know, several hundred years before the exodus from Egypt. We have no hard historical evidence of them, but we do have historical evidence, um, at least from the time of Solomon, King Solomon, and probably also King David. There's a large excavation happening right now in Jerusalem that they call the City of David. It's a controversial excavation. Uh, the New York Times last year published a really great piece about that excavation, so I encourage you to look it up. Um, so, uh, quite possibly, and probably David was a, a historical figure. His son Solomon uh, um, was a historical figure. This is a period of a uh, of a united kingdom in, in Israel, a kingdom that comprised all the twelve tribes of Israel, with its capital in Jerusalem. Um, but. Uh, after the death of Solomon, there was a, a power struggle for uh, for um, the succession to King Solomon. Um, Solomon's son Rehoboam in Hebrew Rehoboam uh, and Solomon's general Jeroboam, uh, Jeroboam uh, were struggling. Uh, each laid claim to the throne, uh, and so uh, Jeroboam. Uh, led a movement essentially to secede from the Union, 
uh, at least in the telling of the of the Book of Kings. Um, could have been the other way around, of course. It could have been that Rehoboam Rehoboam was succeeding from the union. But in in any event, the kingdom split to two. Uh, A kingdom in the north called Israel and a kingdom in the south called Jerusalem. The kingdom uh, is called called Judah. Uh, Judah uh, has its capital in Jerusalem. uh, And in the north, uh, uh, Jeroboam establishes the capital in a city called Dan. In, in, in the north. You can still see the excavations of, of Dan uh, today if you go, if you go to Israel. Um, the, uh, in the telling of, and most of that history of those split kingdoms is in the book of Kings and somewhat in the book of Chronicles too. Um, slightly different tellings of that narrative. Uh, from the, for the most part, uh, the, uh, the, the, the narrative of the book of Kings is told from the perspective of the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah, um, who, uh, uh, generally speaking, the author of that text, or the authors of that text, um, are critical of the kings of uh, the kingdom of Judah, but are very critical of the kings of, uh, of the kingdom of Israel. Um, uh, who they kind of portray as a whole as having um, abandoned the, the the faith and the um, and and the uh, practice of uh, of of, um, of the God of Israel of, of uh, Israelite religion have turned to kind of foreign worship. Um, uh, the kingdom of Israel uh, has its uh, has its zenith in um, in the reign of King Jeroboam II uh, from 786 to 746 BCE. Um, the, the kingdom um, really begins about a hundred years before that, around the year 850. Um, so it's kind of at its height in seven in the in the late uh, or the mid eighth um, century, um, and is destroyed by the Assyrian Empire in 722 BCE. So it really kind of has a short lifespan, about a hundred. Uh, 100, 150 years, um, and is is at its height uh, during um, during the the time of some of the prophets that uh, are in the Hebrew Bible. Amos and Hosea are prophesying uh, mostly during the reign uh, toward toward the end of the reign of, of uh, Jeroboam the second, and uh, immediately after him, where um, where the kingdom is kind of in disarray because there's not a good succession plan for Jeroboam. There's the rise of these. Uh, 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 new powers uh, in the north that are uh, uh, threatening uh, always uh, the, the northern kingdom, um, and there is um, a lot of social disarray and disorder um, uh, during uh, uh, during the end of the uh, the first kingdom, uh, the Israelite kingdom, um, which which also kind of lends itself to the to the message of those prophets, which is that uh, that that you know especially like the reign of Jeroboam says like it looks to you like we are in a time of uh, of splendor and plenty, um, but there's rot underneath the surface. Part of that rot is a spiritual rot. You've abandoned the God of Israel. Um, part of that rot is a social rot. There's uh, inequality and injustice. Um, uh, there, there, there's no rule of law. Um, there is uh, there's no sense of uh, of, of uh, equity or support for the marginal and the poor, um, and it is going to uh, result in this kingdom crumbling or being conquered, which inevitably it is by the Assyrians in 722. Um, the king of Judah, the kingdom of Judah, fares better. 
Um, it, uh, uh, it lasts from r roughly 50 BCE um, to 586 BCE um, when it's conquered by the Babylonians um, and many of its uh, leaders and royals and nobles um, and, and priestly class are exiled to Babylonia, um, where there continues to be a prophetic tradition. Um, so Ezekiel, for example, prophesies uh, in, ba in Babylon. Um, uh, and and uh, probably uh, the book of Isaiah, um, uh, which looks like a unity, is probably not a unity. Um, there's probably multiple uh, Isaiahs. Um, uh, there's, there's definitely... Almost, I mean, nothing is definite, but there's almost certainly two Isaiahs. Uh, one that's Isaiah chapters 1 through 39 um, is what we might call first Isaiah, and then um, uh, uh, 40 through 66 um, is second Isaiah. Some people even say that there might have been third Isaiah. Um, but you can, you, the, the messages and the language of those kind of two parts of the book are very different from each other, and probably second Isaiah was prophesying in Babylon too after the destruction of, uh, of Judah and, uh, uh, and, and the Babylonian exile. Um, uh, a couple other things I just want to mention about the historical period, right? So, the, so during the, uh, during the uh, eighth, uh, 8th century, give, give or take, the 700s, um, this is the period, the height of, of power and uh, um, prominence of both Israel and Judah. They expand territory. They're uh, wealthier than they've ever been, more prosperous than they've ever been. Uh, uh, and, um, and this is really kind of the high point of literary prophecy. Right, saying um, saying that um, things might look good, you you, um, you you've amassed great fortune and power, um, but there is something deeply wrong with what's going on here. Right, you've done it at the expense of what's right and good, and you've done it uh, in a way that has abandoned your values and your principles. Um, so that's that's kind of the um, the the historical period in which the prophets. Uh, prophesy, and I'm actually going to just um, kind of go down a little bit, um, a, a little bit, and talk about in general what are the concerns of, of the prophets, right? In that historical context, what are they what are they talking about? Um, and it's again, these are different historical periods. Each of the prophets have a different message depending on their context. Although it's it's I think important to note that um, that that the prophets. Um, are what we would call today uh, preaching politics. Okay, they are um, they are talking about um, very specific challenges and what they see as evils within their society. Sometimes they're speaking directly to uh, to, to leaders and to royals and to and to kings um, about what they're doing right or what they're doing wrong. Sometimes they're talking about the priestly class. But they're 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 talking about social issues and. Um, uh, sometimes in veiled ways, right? So they're not always direct and clear about their messages, although presumably their immediate audience would have known exactly what they were talking about. It would not have been, or sometimes they might have, hold on one second, sometimes they might have used that veiled language to protect themselves so that you, so that they, they could say, uh, if they, you know, someone wanted to like throw them in jail or execute them and say, no, 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 that's not what I meant when I said it, right? So they have plausible deniability. Um, but a lot of times they are being very sharp and very pointed about uh, the the um, injustices and evils that they're calling out within their own society. Yeah. During your conversation, it rambled through my mind that they're almost like New York Times editorials. 
in some ways that are kind of piercing um, thoughts into what's going on. Just a thought. Yes. So I'm going to say yes to that, but, okay? The but is the prophets, I think, have a, um, a try to take a different vantage point. So they're not just being social critics. They are, uh, uh, they're, they're not calling out usually very specific uh, um, iterations of evil. Uh, Nachman Ward Lev uh, talks about um, this kind of like image that's used a lot of times in uh, social justice circles of um, of you like go to um, you know you go down to the to the James right you go down to Belle Isle and you know, God forbid this should ever happen actually but you see um, you see a bunch of like uh, dead babies washing up on shore. So you're like, well, how, why is that happening? Like, why are you, you see one and you're like, well, this is terrible, right? You see two and you think that like, there's, there must be something bad going on. So you go a little bit further up river and you see that someone's throwing uh, babies into the, into the river, right? And you're like, why is that person doing that? That's evil, right? So the prophets are going up river to see what's the root cause of the problem, but they're even doing something more fundamental than that. They're saying, what's the value system that is contributing to the mindset of the person who is, uh, who's doing that? What are the structures, the social structures and systems that are in place that are encouraging um, or supporting that behavior in the first place? So, they're, so, they're, so I would say that, the, that generally speaking, the uh, editorial page of the New York Times would talk about how bad it is that babies are washing up on shore. It might call out the person who's throwing them in. The prophets are going uh, steps beyond that and saying we're, they're attacking the value system that's underlying that behavior. Right? That's sort of the, the overall sweep and scope of it. And um, and also, where's God? Right? Where's God in this? Right? So they're they're um, they're railing against a broader narrative of command and control from the elites. They're challenging. Uh, the sense of time that is present in, in their world, right? The royals and elites say that the way this is the way things are is the way things always were and the way they always ought to be. And you can see that even happening in our time. Like it's easy to kind of get 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 kind of like stuck in the moment, right? And then you become more or less complacent in the moment. You, see, you don't think back to you know um, uh, what things were like a thousand years ago. Right, say like maybe someone was onto something a thousand years ago about how we ought to treat each other and behave, and you don't think a thousand years into the future about what's going on right now. But the prophets um, have a much greater scope of history. They say our story goes back much further than what the elites and royals will have you say right now, and our story extends much farther. And we need to get beyond this immediate place of of, of right now, which always benefits the powers that be. If you can kind of keep people's focus on the right here, right now, on their on, on what they what they own, what they have, what they might lose if they were to challenge it, and you get beyond that to the to the wider scope of history, um, you have a much more you're you're much more able to challenge what is. And so that's um, one of the things that the prophets are trying to do. They're also challenging the connection uh, between prosperity and power. Right, and so the so royals and elites say you will prosper if you align yourselves with us, right? If you align yourselves with the powers that be, and the prophets say that's not how we prosper. We prosper when we align ourselves with God, 
Right? Now, that may not mean that you individually, person right now, will prosper if you have better faith. But it means that in the long run, in the scope of history, um, we'll uh, be better off if we uh, align ourselves with God. The prophets are um, uh, concerned with what God is concerned with. So here's what Heschel says about the prophet. This, then, is the ultimate category of prophet, prophetic theology. God's involvement, attentiveness, and concern. Prophetic religion may be defined not as what man does with his ultimate concern, but rather what man does with God's concern. The theme of prophetic understanding is not the mystery of God's essence, but rather the mystery of his relation to man. What the prophet knows about God is his pathos, his relation to Israel and mankind. So the prophet has a sense that God cares about what's happening in the world and what's happening in human history, and the prophet is empathetic to God's concern. Right? So the prophet says, God's heart is broken by what's going on here. My heart is broken because God's heart is broken, and I want to communicate to you why God is sad and angry about what's happening here right now. And it's rooted in an idea that, that God has love for Israel, and if you take the idea of the book of Jonah, that God has love for all mankind. Most of the prophets, again, are talking in kind of the immediate sense to the people of Israel or the people of Judah, um, but Jonah expands that to being of all mankind. And the idea of God's love for uh, for for, uh, for people broadly, for Israel, um, is something that is not... This is one of the... I, I don't want to... Uh, get too deep into what has been a historical Christian critique of the Old Testament, of, of Hebrew scriptures. I don't think it's broadly true of Hebrew scriptures, but if you take a kind of source critical uh, approach to the scriptures, you can note that Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy don't talk a lot about God's love um, and about a reciprocal relationship between God's love for people and people's love for God. Deuteronomy does. And as it turns out, uh, Deuteronomy was most likely written during the uh, during the reign of King Josiah uh, in uh, in um, 640 to 610 BCE, which also coincides with the uh, with the careers of a lot of the literary prophets. So there's there's a, a um, something in the mindset of people who are writing and talking about Josiah, uh, probably someone in his court who may have been one of these literary prophets, um, wrote a book in through the mouth of, of Moses, right? The book of Deuteronomy it purports to be basically a series of speeches by Moses, the greatest of the prophets, right? And it's all about the reciprocal love between God and Israel. It has a lot right, about the reciprocal love between God and Israel, which is unique among the books of the Pentateuch. And so the prophetic literature spends a lot of time talking about that idea uh, that uh, God loves Israel, and therefore God is pained uh, when Israel strays, right? And that God, what God wants is for Israel to reciprocate that, that love for God. So uh, Jeremiah chapter 2 says, Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Infinite One, I remember you, the devotion of your youth, your love like a bride, when you went after me in the wilderness in the land that was not sown. Right? So like God said, you know, Jeremiah is prophesying to the people at the eve of the uh, conquest of Babylon uh, and exile, uh, saying, you know, 
don't you remember when we like shared that small little apartment together, right? We had nothing, but we just loved each other. Why can't we get back uh, together, right? You've you strayed. You, you, you're going, you're, you're dating other women, right? That's what God says. To, um, that's, the, that's the prophetic concern. They want uh, a, a, a Hosea also uses this metaphor a lot of the of the breaking of faith and the breaking of relationship, right? That you've that you've gone after other partners, right? That you've that you've left relationship with with the divine. But usually, that's that's not expressed purely in what we would call religious terms, right? The, the prophets are less concerned in a mathematical equation, right? That that, that you're like you're following two gods and not one, or you're following the wrong god and not the right god. Monotheism, the relationship between God and, and Israel in the prophetic sense, almost always translates to, um, to, the, to the social order, right? The way we understand God, the idea of monotheism, the idea of having one God and being in relationship with that God, um, is, uh, is, is, is a moral and ethical proposition, right? If you believe that all people are, the creation, are equally created in the divine image, if you believe all people, therefore, have infinite dignity and equal value, right, then you can't tolerate a system in which some people have more and some people have less. Some people are oppressors and some people are the oppressed. And so the, the prophets carry that message. That religious message is an ethical message that the prophets convey to the people usually um, usually unsuccessfully, but nevertheless, we have that um, uh, the, the remnant of their words uh, still with us today that we hold as, uh, as models and as examples of, uh, of, of how we relate to the way things are and to the power s- structures and to the systems that we experience and uh, whether that is, is or is not in alignment of, with what God's vision for what the world uh, uh, ought to be. Where the prophets are never satisfied with the world as it is and always carry forth a vision of the world as it ought to be. And usually, um, not uh, don't only give you know what we I think this is an unfair term a Jeremiah uh, an elegy for the way things are, but also strive to offer a positive vision of, of hope about where things could be. That's also important because lots of people talk about prophetic preaching uh, and the prophetic tradition nowadays, right? And why I think uh, people hold uh, Dr. King uh, in the esteem of the Israelite prophets because it didn't only uh, call out the injustices of the world as it is, but also offered a vision of the world as it could be, right? And, and that I think is, you know, uh, I say this as a critique of myself who sometimes like tries to preach in the prophetic spirit, but others who do too, that we don't always do as good a job. Uh, we, it's, it's easier to criticize the way things are. It's harder to paint a picture of the way things ought to be, which is also, I think, an important component of, uh, of, of prophetic teaching. Um, I think we're out of time. Um, do we have time for one or two questions or no? So we'll have to scoop. Okay. To, to get the ones who are making the show go. <laughs> yeah. But you all can stay and chat a little bit longer. Sure. That's okay. Yeah. But thank you. Thank you very, very much. much. Thank you. What time do we like hard stop have to be? I'd say um, 
in 10 minutes. 10 minutes, okay. So, so, so yeah, so uh, for those who want to stay, I, I, we can do like 10 minutes of uh, Q&A if you want, or, or I can take one or two questions. Thank you, everybody, who's not staying. So, uh, this is more historical, but the Dark Ages that they talk about in Greece, and, mm -hmm. and was, was that when, um, was that when, um, who, who, who was the king before David? Uh, uh, Saul. 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 Was that when Saul, was it right before that when Saul sort of? Yeah. No, I mean, I think that the Dark Ages that people talk about are, like, after the fall of Rome, right? The, so, um, uh, from the 4th century until the, um, until, you know, maybe Newton, or you know, or maybe some people say the Renaissance. Well, um, no, is that I, what you're talking about? I, I'm, I guess I didn't use a good descriptive word. Mm. No, the time, I guess, when the Philistines maybe come. Uh, I see. Um, so... Again, we don't know a lot about um, the history of Israel pre-monarchy, um, or at least the history as we have evidence for it pre-monarchy doesn't seem to align with the biblical description of the history pre-monarchy. Um, so that may be why it could be a, a dark age, because we don't know a lot about it. Um, uh, by the time of the monarchy... Um, by the time of David, um, uh, uh, there were. Uh, I'm trying to think of how to put this. There were um, uh, there were a number of like competing uh, uh, tribes and um, ethnic groups in the what we now what we now see is called the land of Israel. Um, the Philistines occupied the coast, the coastal plain, which actually, not coincidentally, is like most of uh, modern day state of Israel is now in the in, in that in that part of the country. Um, and uh, there were there were kind of indigenous Canaanite tribes in in the north and in the south and different populations. Right? The Israelites are also. Um, from a certain perspective, like an indigenous Canaanite uh, or band of Canaanite tribes. Um, the, the narrative of the Bible is that, um, that all, of the, all of those Israelites were enslaved in Egypt and they left Egypt and then conquered the uh, land uh, under the leadership of Joshua um, sometime around the year 1300 before the Common Era. Um, there's really no evidence of that conquest. Um, the book of Judges paints a different picture of uh, a partial conquest of the land, so that, that the Israelites had, you know, had, had settled the land after leaving Egypt, but they were still, they were still fighting against Philistines and other uh, Canaanite tribes, Moabites, there other, other uh, um, uh, populations. Um, so we don't know a lot about that. By the time of the monarchy, uh, by the time of King David, uh, as, uh, I should say, um, the primary threat to the Israelites were the Philistines, it, it seems. Um, uh, that changes as the you know, period of the monarchy uh, moves forward. Um, eventually, the major threats are the, are the, are the empires that reemerge uh, prior to the period of the Israelite monarchy, which is probably how the Israelite monarchy grows in the first place, that there's, there, there, the major competing powers are Babylon and Egypt, 
Um, and, uh, and there's a kind of like period, a small window, a century long or so window of, uh, of a decline in power of Egypt and Babylon that enable um, these kind of uh, local populations to, to, to rise and, and, uh, and, and, and assert themselves and establish themselves. The Philistines um, bring new technology uh, into the region. So the, the Philistines um, uh, have iron weapons. Uh, and uh, everybody else only has bronze weapons, um, and so you know it's like it's like you're you know literally you're bringing a, a knife to a gunfight, right? Um, uh, that's you know so the the, the the conflict between the Israelites and the Philistines um, is a brutal conflict, and they're very fearsome enemies because they have better technology. With the development of technologies within the development of us. Has the receptors and reception for prophecy become less? We we have wonderful ancient prophets, and I'm fairly ignorant on this platform, but I don't hear a lot of I think that that's a matter of perspective. Uh, you know, so Jewish tradition classically has said that um, that that prophecy ended with the last of the literary prophets. Um, um, Christianity obviously uh, uh, sees that tradition differently because you know you have um, prophetic figures or prophet-like figures like John the Baptist and, and Jesus. So. Um, but the way I see it uh, is that you know, prophets, um, in a sense, are really prophets from the vantage point of history. Uh, in their time, um, they're, uh, they're annoying people with you know, radical social messages. Um, and you know, either they, they, they are, you know, his history proves them to have been insightful or, or correct uh, or not. Um, I think that, that a good example of that is, is Martin Luther King, right? Who, um, when he died, was um, not especially popular, um, and uh, and today we revere him as as uh, you know. Uh, some people may not want to use the term prophet, but he kind of ticks the boxes um, of uh, of a lot of what we would call a, uh, a prophetic figure. So I think, to me, um, I, I don't I don't buy into the uh, to the narrative that um, uh, that uh, that that God was more present and um, and, and God's message was more discernible. In olden times, and today um, we can't access it, and that we're not as 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 close to the divine. I think that we that people today um, fundamentally are the same as people back then, um, and um, and we have the same capacity for uh, for insight and inspiration uh, that uh, that that people back then had. Um, and so there can be prophets today, just as there were prophets back then. Um, I, you know, obviously we have more distraction today, um, so you know it's uh, it's maybe easier to commune with the divine when you don't have things tweeting at you all the time. Um, I think that's <laughs> been the focus of our adult forum this fall of prophets now, or the idea of prophets and prophets now. So what are what are some of the things that? It's been very helpful to um, open up 
the definition of profits from the Bible to the bottom.